I call it kind of an elephant in the room, hiding in plain sight that nobody seems to have noticed. All the major climate models are missing one key variable, says John Clauser, winner of the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics. He was one of the two Nobel laureates to sign a declaration by a global coalition of scientists stating, there is no climate emergency. This is clearly the most important mechanism that controls the climate, controls the temperature of the Earth, and stabilizes it very powerfully and very dramatically. In this episode, Clauser breaks down how clouds and variations in cloud cover profoundly impact the climate. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Dr. John Klosser, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Okay, thank you. Well, Dr. Klosser, first of all, uh, congratulations on winning the 2022 uh, Nobel Prize for Physics um, in this realm, which I've always been absolutely fascinated with, quantum entanglement, you know, spooky action as a distance, as, it's, as it has been called. Um, but you have actually been in the news recently over another issue, which is climate change. And, and, I'm, and I'm just very, very curious, before we d dive into this, um, how is it that you uh, became involved in this? How is it that you got interested in this? Well, I, I have been uh, interested in climate science for most most of its uh, most of its history, including back to Al Gore's original uh, movie and, and the like, uh, and I have been rather distressed about the poor quality of the science that is being done. Uh, and in fact, uh, back around in 2010, I, there were any number of uh, uh, requests for comments by the American Physical Society, which I responded to, and all of which were. Uh, totally ignored. Um, but And then when I was in Stockholm and talking to the uh, prize committee uh, who awarded this uh, my prize in, in, in physics, I pointed out to them uh, that I disagreed with their 2021 uh, Nobel Prize that they had given, that I believe that the, uh, the dominant process in controlling the climate has been totally misidentified. They identify it as due to carbon dioxide. I identify it uh, totally differently. And if you go back through and read all of the various uh, IPCC reports, the National Academy reports, the Royal Society reports, they all are totally clueless. Uh, and frequently even admit to being totally clueless as to the effects of clouds. Actually, one of the things that got me interested in studying this was I'm a sailboat racer. I raced across the Pacific Ocean at least a dozen times. And I remember lying in, I had set up the boat, my boat with uh, solar uh, panels to charge the batteries. And we were sailing along, I was lying in my berth, and I had an ammeter uh, on the uh, power output from the solar panels. And I noticed every time we sailed under a cloud, the output from the solar panels uh, dropped by 50%. 
to half of its value that it was. And then we came out from behind the cloud and boom, their power went back up. And I thought, gee, I wonder why it's just about a factor of two. Uh, and then I spent a fair amount of time staring at clouds, how they move, how they watch, just from uh, uh, sailing across <laughs> the Pacific Ocean many times. One needs to study these things. And uh, so I became very curious as to how clouds work. Um, and then when the, the climate uh, issues uh, came uh, along, I very quickly realized that cloud cover has a profound effect on the, the Earth's uh, heat in, input, that the clouds are reflecting a massive amount of light back out into space. And so I then read all of the various IPCC reports, uh, National Academy reports on this. As a physicist, uh, I used had worked at uh, some excellent institutions, uh, Caltech, Columbia, Cal Berkeley, where very careful science needed to be done. And reading these reports, I was appalled at how sloppy the work was. And in particular, it was very obvious, uh, even in the early rep earliest reports and all clear on through to the present, that clouds were not at all understood and were very poorly treated as just simply bad science. Well, absolutely fascinating. And so, you know, well, well one quick question, okay? So I'm sure someone has said yeah. this to you, okay? Um, you know, you're, of course, uh, an expert in quantum mechanics. Has anyone said to you, hey, stay in your lane. Climate change isn't your thing. Instead, what I was told when I was doing the quantum mechanics uh, experiments was, oh, everybody knows the results of the experiment. It's unimportant. Uh, you're wasting your time. The experiments that I did that won the Nobel Prize, I was told uh, very specifically, what a waste of time and effort. Uh, uh, you're spending, wasting money that could be otherwise spent doing some real physics. That is, that is absolutely astounding. Well, why don't, before we jump into the climate change stuff, why don't you just quickly explain to me, you know, what, what, you, what your experiment found? That was work that I did over 50 years ago when I was uh, actually still in graduate, started when I was still a graduate student at Columbia. And then where I read a fascinating paper by John Bell and realized that this was a way of settling a years-old argument between uh, Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein. Actually, Albert Einstein, uh, along with Schrodinger, Erwin uh, Schrodinger on one hand, and Niels Bohr along with John von Neumann on the other, and I realized that, number one, that they had never resolved the, the, the details of, of their discussion. Uh, and number two, that I could actually design an, an experiment uh, to uh, test and see which side of the argument uh, was right. So I did exactly that. It showed that it's a very real process. And that particle, in particular, that particles can be remain entangled, in quantum mechanically entangled, no matter how far apart they are, are separated. Uh, 
In my experiment, we had pair of particles separated maybe 20 feet apart, and they were still in, uh, entangled. Now experiments have been done where they're a thousand kilometers apart and still remain in, uh, entangled. And everybody told me at the time, uh, well, you got the results that everybody expected. We all knew that Bohr was right and that Einstein was wrong. Uh, and it, it, it sort of got filed away and, and took uh, 50 years to be recognized as, about, uh, as actually rather important a uh, feature of physics that uh, quantum entanglement was not only misunderstood up till then, uh, but was actually uh, very useful. Once it became useful, that really kind of uh, got uh, people's attention. That was money coming in from CIA, NSA, uh, who realized that it could be used for, uh, for encryption, uh, encrypted communication. So once money uh, became part of the deal, uh, all everybody took notice. You know, and I just want to comment on this. You know, when I first learned about this many, many years ago, you know, of course it captured my and you know millions of people's imagination that you have you know one particle on one side, you know, thousands of kilometers or millions of miles apart, and it changes its polarity, and the other one instantaneously changes as well. Well, that's uh, the tricky bit. You, you, you don't know. The question, there are two questions. One is whether or not it has these properties to start with. So if you want to change the property of one of the particles, you need to claim that it indeed has the pro said properties. Effectively, what uh, quantum mechanics says is it does not have these properties before you measure them. And what Bohr was arguing was, don't ask why it doesn't. It just doesn't just accept it. I, f I found that uh, very disturbing and, and uh, distressing to, uh, uh, to, to, to believe. I didn't understand it. And Einstein similarly uh, didn't buy uh, uh, Bohr's arguments. Well, but in the end, I think you... Bohr was vindicated, right, through your experiments, if I understand that correctly. Uh, well, Einstein was clearly wrong. Uh, Einstein's whole program appears to be in shambles, including some of the fundamental pillars of, behind uh, general relativity. But I don't know that uh, Bohr's saying, don't ask, don't tell, uh, is uh, particularly satisfying either. Well, so perhaps a topic for another show. And so let's, so let's dive into the yeah. climate change uh, stuff here, which I find absolutely fascinating. Why don't you give me your case for how is it that clouds, which are obviously, you know, very, very important part of our, of our system, um, have somehow been overlooked in these models? Um, okay, that's an interesting history behind that. That goes back uh, clear to the, the original National Academy report in 2003 and then percolated through all of the various IPCC reports. But I think one of the more important things that's happened recently uh, is a gentleman, Steve Coonan, who was Barack Obama's uh, science advisor, recently published a very important seminal book called Unsettled what climate science tells us, what it doesn't, and why it matters. It's a very important book. 
And his basic message is that the, the IPCC has 40 different computer models, all of which are making predictions, and all of which are being quoted by the press as predicting a, a climate crisis apocalypse. The problem is they all are in total disagreement, violent disagreement with each other in their predictions, and not one of them is capable of predicting uh, retroactively, of predict, uh, explaining the history of the Earth's uh, climate for the last hundred years. He finds this very distressing, and he then uh, correspondingly uh, says, or believes that there is some important, uh, there's an important piece of physics uh, that is uh, missing in virtually all of these computer models. And so what I'm adding to the mix here is I believe I have the missing piece of the puzzle, if you will, that has been left out in virtually all of these computer programs, and that is the effect of clouds. The 2003 National Academy report uh, totally uh, admitted that they didn't understand it, and they made a whole series of mistake, uh, mistaken statements uh, regarding the effects of clouds. If you look at Al Gore's movie, he insists on talking about a cloud-free Earth, and the only way he can do this, he generates one for the mosaic of photos each one taken on a cloudless day for covering the whole earth. That's a totally artificial earth, and is it a totally artificial case for using a model? And this is pretty much what the IPCC and, and others use, is a, a cloud-free earth. If you look at pictures uh, of the earth in visible light, i.e. real sunlight, which is, sunlight is the stuff that heats the earth. Uh, the infrared re-radiation is the stuff that, that cools the earth. And it's the balance between these two that controls uh, the earth's temperature. And the important piece of the puzzle that has been left out is trying to do this all with a cloud-free earth when the real Earth is shrouded in clouds. I have some pictures, I don't know if you can uh, show them, of satellite pictures of the Earth. These are all freely available on NASA's website. And they show cloud cover variations anywhere from 5 to 95 percent. Typically, the Earth is shrouded in clouds uh, at least between a third of its uh, area to two-thirds of its area. And, this, and this, it fluctuates. The cloud cover fraction fluctuates uh, quite dramatically on daily, weekly time scales. We call this weather. <laughs> you can't have weather without having clouds. And it is this fluctuation in cloud cover of the earth that causes what I would refer to as sunlight reflectivity thermostat that controls the climate, controls the temperature of the earth, and stabilizes it uh, very uh, powerfully and very dramatically. Uh, this mechanism 
totally uh, uh, heretofore unnoticed, uh, and I call it kind of a, an elephant in the room hiding in plain sight that nobody seems to have noticed. Uh, I can't imagine why, why not, but there were similar elephants in the room in quantum mechanics that I discovered. So the variation in the cloud cover, uh, the, the importance in the actual power balance is 200 times more powerful than the uh, effect, uh, the small effect by comparison of CO2. And I might add also of methane. They're all, methane and CO2 are comparable in the, uh, in the total heat loss. So I, let me give you an example of, uh, of how, how this mechanism works. Okay, first off, you have to notice that the Earth is two-thirds ocean. And that's where most of the, cloud, the importance of the clouds comes in. Sunlight is the heating mechanism. Clouds appear bright white. Ground, oceans, etc., are very dark and reflect very little light. But clouds reflect 90% of the sunlight that hits them gets reflected back out into space where it no longer comes to the Earth, no longer heats the Earth. Say you only got a, a third of uh, cloud cover. So you now have lots and lots of sunlight. Sunlight impinging on the ocean evaporates seawater. Seawater forms water vapor. The water vapor floats up to the, up into the sky and forms clouds. It forms lots and lots of clouds because the cloud uh, creation rate is very high. But we started out with too low a set of clouds and now we have an increasing number so now we end up with very high cloud coverage. Okay, so now to say it's two-thirds. Well, let me give you an example. If you want to try to read a book on an overcast day, indoors, without turning the lights on, it's just too dark. You can't do it without turning the lights on. The question is, where did all that sunlight go? It's coming in scattered light coming in through the window, but boy, it's a lot darker now. So uh, where did it go? There's only one place. It got scattered back out into space where it's no longer uh, heating the earth. So, okay, so we have the total power input coming to the earth is now much, much smaller. Okay, well, this is happening on the oceans too. If you have large cloud cover, you have a lot of shadows. Clouds create shadows. You can see this by standing on a, a watching clouds pass over. Well, the oceans are now shadowed. The shadows don't have enough energy to evaporate anywhere near as much water. So if we have too much cloud cover, then the, oh, we reduce the evaporation rate of water and so that then re reduces the production of clouds. So we now have these two competing clouds. Okay, so the, the power loss is like 104 watts per square meter when we only have a third cloud cover and 208 watts per square meter of surface area of the Earth when we have a very low cloud cover. So the difference between those is the order of 104 watts per square meter of surface area. That needs to be compared with this minuscule half a watt per square meter of surface area that CO2 contributes. So the 
power in this thermostat, in terms of what they refer to as radiative forcing, so these are the how many watts per square meter of surface area uh, are, are involved, is 200 times more powerful than the effect of CO2, and also methane, by the way. So I then uh, assert that this is so powerful. I mean, it's like you have a, your house has a huge furnace with a very uh, accurate thermostat controlling the, uh, uh, its temperature, and somebody leaves a minor, a uh, small bathroom window, and there's a small heat leak. Uh, would you, the rest of the house, notice a, a change in temperature? None of your thermostat is working very well. This is clearly the most important, the controlling uh, mechanism for the Earth's temperature and, and climate, and it dwarfs the effect of CO2 and methane. All the government programs that are designed to uh, limit CO2 and methane should be immediately uh, dropped. We're spending trillions of dollars on this, and it's sort of like Everett Dirksen's famous line, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there, uh, and pretty soon you're, you're talking real money. Dr. Klauser, let me jump in here for a moment. Are you saying, sure. and it's, it's kind of common sense that cloud cover would play a role in these IPCC climate models, but are you suggesting that in none of these models, uh, the cloud cover is actually included? In, indeed. And in fact, uh, Kunin mentions this uh, in, his, uh, in his book. They really didn't mention anything uh, in the uh, early IPCC reports. Uh, and finally, like in 2013, in the so-called AR5 report, they finally got a big section on clouds. And none of these uh, uh, properties that I have just mentioned, the fact that we have this huge fluctuation in cloud cover, the fact that the cloud reflectivity uh, is varying by this huge amount of power loss out into space, none of that is, is mentioned. They all, all these models, and they've gone to great effort in saying, uh, saying, well, the Earth's albedo, okay, that's the ref average reflectivity of sunlight, if you will, the re reflectivity uh, fraction of sunlight, uh, they all say, well, what is it? And it's 0.3, and it's, and, and Kunin mentions, gee, you know, if we somehow it got uh, raised to 0.31, uh, that would uh, buy, and that would only take a 5% increase in average uh, cloud cover. Uh, that would uh, totally wipe out uh, any of the effects of, of say, doubling uh, CO2. Uh, <laughs> nobody this seems to notice that there's this huge variation from like 5% to 95%. Uh, cloud cover quite visible. Uh, and it's, uh, I have no idea how could they, they, they could have missed that. What I'm hearing strains all credulity here, all semblance of credulity. So the, there's, one fa there's one factor of this, of the albedo, which is this, you know, reflectivity measure. 
and and it's just basically kept the same throughout all these different models, even though the reality is so dramatically different, obviously. It is kept the same. And in fact, uh, there have been even worse. Uh, there have been any number of proposals, totally silly ideas, uh, like painting all the roofs of the world white, uh, all the highways white, uh, and you can't see any roofs or from the satellite pictures. The, the total area of roofs is vanishingly small, and there's no way it's going to affect the uh, uh, power ballast. Uh, and some of these model, these proposals are all geoengineering proposals, uh, solar radiation management proposals, um, are, are totally silly and outrageously expensive. We're talking for the for one of the proposals, uh, talking about a trillion dollars a year to spend on solar radiation management. What I am asserting here is that the Earth provides its own, own solar radiation management. It's built in, uh, it occurs naturally, it works, it's very effective, and it's free. And you don't need to spend trillions of dollars per year. Do you have any idea how something maybe so obvious how there could be an oversight of this nature around something, a variable that's obviously incredibly important in this equation. Well, uh, I ran into uh, two other, what I refer to as elephants in the room, in, when I was studying quantum mechanics. So virtually all of the, the quantum mechanics uh, experts and physicists in the world seem to have ignored, ignored some very simple uh, and obvious when you see them and think about them, but not obvious if you haven't. Like for example, this uh, a, I discovered a point by made by Max Born about how the the difference between uh, the two Schrodinger equations uh, that they were working in very totally different spaces. And when Bohr was talking to Einstein, each one was assuming the other was working in a different uh, space. One was working in configuration space, one was working in laboratory space. And for some reason, these two very bright guys didn't seem to notice that they were arguing in, uh, t uh, past each other and then talking about uh, uh, formulations of, of the wave function in uh, these two totally different uh, spaces. And this went on for 80 years until I po pointed out in a, in, a, in a recent paper. So yes, uh, things like this uh, do occur. So is the, are the IPCC modelers rushing to incorporate these changing variables of, our, uh, of albedo according to actual, you know, real measurements, for example? Not, not to my knowledge, not yet. I haven't I haven't talked to any any of the modelers no and no one has yet got contacted me in fact this is the first uh, um, my, my comments to you and uh, more recently and others are kind of the first revelation of all this oh, I mean it, it, it it's absolutely fascinating and you know <laughs> I guess of profound significance because this 
question of trying to mitigate anthropogenic climate change is a kind of a become a dominant, you know, kind of force in politics and in, in basically how how country, entire countries are organizing themselves. I agree. The whole world is doing all of this. Uh, a lot of the pressure is actually coming uh, uh, from Europe, all of these various world conferences. Uh, all of this is coming, I, I'm i guessing, from, started out by, uh, uh, initialized by Al Gore's movie. And Al Gore's movie has a lot of, uh, uh, of uh, incorrect science built into it. Well, so this is this is actually an interesting question as well. You know, when we were talking offline, you mentioned, you know, that in this area there's quite a bit of pseudoscience, essentially things that are accepted as true but that have not been rig rigorously proven by any means. But this is actually a general issue in many fields, not just in this one. Some of it, in particular, in climate change is actually very dishonest disinformation that has been presented by various politicians. And uh, the one of the most important ones uh, that I think has happened is a done by was done by NOAA, uh, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Association. There was a, a an article in 2013 in Physics Today, Physics Today is the uh, standard uh, technical news journal for, for physicists. Uh, and it was written by two non-scientists, uh, Jane Lubitschenko and Thomas Carl. Uh, Lubitschenko was the um, Undersecretary of Commerce uh, for Climate Change and Carl was the director of NOAA for climate change, and they published a very uh, an egregious piece of disinformation in uh, Physics Today. How it got past referees, assuming there were referees for Physics Today, uh, I don't know. But this was in the era when uh, climate change had been, was being rebranded. If you recall, originally we referred to this as global warming. And then all of a sudden, somewhere around 2013 or so, uh, it got rebranded as climate change. And the question is, well, why is it, uh, why, why are we changing the name? Uh, well, the reason that was uh, given uh, at the time was, well, because it's really more than just warming. You know, nobody minds if it's a degree warmer, but, but it's the effects. Uh, and the, the claimed effects are that we will have a, a dramatic increase in extreme weather events, uh, landfalling hurricanes, uh, hot spells, cold spells, uh, floods, droughts, things, horrible things, uh, uh, apocalyptic things, if you will, uh, will occur as a result of global warming, and so we're going to call it climate change. And so what this Physics Today article did, they produced a extreme weather event 
index, which in somehow was some weighted average of number of droughts, floods, hurricanes, and the like. They then tallied uh, from uh, NOAA data uh, what this index was for a hundred years. And they then presented plots of this uh, index value that they had had for a uh, hundred years. And then in the headlines of their article, they said that the extreme weather events are all being caused by global warming and that their frequency has been dramatically rising, uh, especially in the last three decades. And so, okay, I became associated when I was working at Cal Berkeley uh, on the quantum mechanics, uh, uh, my various experiments in quantum mechanics, uh, with two very important Nobel laureates. One was uh, Louis Alvarez, and uh, one was Charlie Towns. Um, Louis Alvarez is very famous for having developed the, the so-called Five Sigma criterion for believability of experiments uh, in physics. Physics is the only one that uses that. Uh, the standard for believability, especially in, in medicine, in economics, and in particular in climate change, is far weaker. These two men would look at data like those presented by Lubachenko, Lubachenko and Carl, and Alvarez would uh, growl, a rather gruff guy, and would say, flattest line I ever saw. And Charlie Towns was a bit more uh, polite. He would uh, say, I don't see in the data what you're telling me that I am supposed to see. So what I did was I just simply traced out of the, the graphic the, printed in the article the, their data. Uh, and I plotted it twice. Once uh, forwards properly and once time reversed where I lived a hundred years ago with today and, and so that the, uh, and vice versa, uh, so that the arrow, the time was increasing to the left. You can't tell them apart. If you can't tell which way is, uh, time is going, then it's very difficult to claim that it's obvious that the, uh, climate extremes index, uh, is uh, increasing. <laughs> and uh, my question is, are you really willing to bet trillions of dollars that you know which is right? Is it really <laughs> increasing? It is clearly not. Moreover, one of the things I noticed in reading Steve Coonan's book, <laughs> conspicuously absent in their list of extreme weather events, uh, is they left out EF3 plus tornadoes frequency. And if you added them in, it's actually clearly decreasing because the frequency of high energy uh, tornadoes has actually been decreasing uh, certainly in the last 50 years. So 
This, in my opinion, is a rather egregious breach of honesty by the U.S. government and by NOAA, and it is clearly done uh, by political persuasion. How the mechanics of the, the political uh, persuasion occurred, I, I, I have no idea. All I have noticed is that the Physics Today article is total crap. You know, and not only, as I understand it, are these extreme weather events not increasing, but our ability to mitigate them has increased. So they're just not as much of an uh, issue. I don't think there's anything we can do. It's there. The weather is, <laughs> I mean, Mark Twain's old line uh, still applies. Everybody talks about uh, the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Doing anything, that was what one of these geoengineering proposals uh, uh, are outrageously expensive and they're totally ineffectual. There's no way you're going to have any effect. But, the okay, my surprise is that people are upset with what I'm giving, I believe, to be good news. The good news is we don't need to. It's all, the, the, we don't, the, the CO2 is just... This worry about CO2, the worry about methane, the worry about global warming is all a total fabrication by shock journalists and, and or dishonest politicians. Well, you know, there's, there's a huge uh, bureaucratic infrastructure, let's call it an industry, that's developed. I mean, I don't know what it's worth, but it's hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions. I don't know. It's very big, okay? And, and in the upper yes. echelons of power Trillions related of dollars. to this issue, right? Yes. Well, I think one of the problems that I, I've been encountering uh, is that once you have made a decision based on this incorrect uh, information, you are pretty much wedded to, to defend it. And... and People in great power who have made these decisions do are very unhappy being having it revealed or being accused of having made uh, in, tr incorrect trillion-dollar uh, decisions. So, have you asked other scientists, or you know, especially people involved in this specific field? to look at what you've discovered and give their opinion on it uh, from their expert perspective. Yes, just recently, uh, the, uh, the text of the talk that I was going to give that I sent you, I have sent off and I'm uh, waiting for additional comments from uh, Will Happer, who, who was uh, uh, Clinton's science advisor and runs the CO2 coalition, and uh, Steve Coonan, who is Obama's uh, climate advisor, uh, who are uh, very bright uh, physicists. By various discussions with uh, uh, various other physicists, I have ha had uh, no one who's been able to or has uh, shown me uh, where, I'm, uh, where I'm wrong. But it, it's... Uh, it, the, it's, it will take time to get, to get studied. So you're kind of making a project now of finding different elephants in the room, so to speak. Is that is that what I'm to understand? <laughs> well, it's sort of what physicists do. <laughs> that, that, 
is uh, noticing that the emperor is, is stark naked. The one problem that many have is, you know, if you really look at data and you follow it uh, carefully, it may lead you to um, politically incorrect areas. Do you really want to go there? I, it doesn't bother me, but it bothers uh, others, I guess. I personally uh, uh, am in favor uh, of, of truth. Uh, the, the, that's what physicists do, is, is, is to discover uh, natural truth. Do you make a distinction with you know, this, let's say, politically motivated uh, scientific literature and pseudoscience? Indeed. Well, I gave a talk recently in Korea where I pointed out that there are really two different kinds of, of truth. Um, there is what, what physicists do, or at least what we should do, is look, observe nature, and make conclusions from what we actually see from our observations, from our experiments. That constitutes truth. If the, if the experiments are done carefully and analyzed uh, critically and peer-reviewed by others, uh, that's what physicists do is to cross-check each other's work and try to come up with, uh, with new understanding. Businessmen, politicians, uh, journalists uh, all have a very different mode of truth. That is perception of truth. Perception of truth is whether or not you can sell it. If you can sell it, it must be true. If you can't sell it, uh, it must be false. Uh, now, one of the differences between, uh, and this have nothing to do with, with the real truth, which is what you would get by uh, measuring, uh, <laughs> going out and measuring it and getting real data as to what the, what the truth is. But the, an important difference between the two kinds of truth is that perception of truth is malleable. That is, you can, uh, change it. Uh, so say you can't sell it but you still want to sell it. That's all right. We'll just change the truth. By how do we do that? Well, by advertising. We call it product differentiation. Uh, we, we, we want to show that there's a, a difference between our product and somebody else's product, even though there is none. So we create this, uh, this difference. We, and we can change the truth. Uh, and whereas real truth, you can't change. The experiments, the observations are, are true. Uh, for example, the, the uh, IPCC perceives that the cloud cover is constant. Uh, <laughs> and although it clearly it does not agree with the observations, all you have to do is just look at the uh, satellite pictures and you see that it's it's highly variable. Uh, this can be used in very dishonest ways by intentionally promoting false information. Uh, 
also known as disinformation. Uh, they call it promotion uh, or advertising. When uh, politicians and governments do it, they call it spin. They call it propaganda. Uh, and it really has very little to, to do with, with reality. They just simply need this to be true to promote whatever uh, product they're selling, whatever uh, uh, purpose they have in mind, uh, whatever wars they want to create or the like. I've been doing this for centuries uh, with, with propaganda. Now, the problem then is that this has all become totally pervasive. The, there, are, there are no referees for, and in particular of late, politicians uh, are becoming self-styled scientists and promoting scientific disinformation. They just simply make up scientific information. This is uh, uh, very common in client science. Uh, uh, is very common in medicine. It's particularly common in economics. Uh, the, so now one of the problems is that there are no decent fact checkers available. How does a fact checker know what, uh, what is true and what is not? He can't. And this has particularly become apparent with these new uh, uh, with, uh, programs like ChatGPT. It is better at spreading disinformation than, than the, the, the program's authors. It just simply makes up stuff as it needs it. It can't even solve, do arithmetic. It, it is so stupid. Nonetheless, it can lie. It can cheat. It can fabricate um, uh, references. There's a recent article in the New York Times reading where some uh, uh, poor lawyer uh, submitted a brief to a court that, that, that was written by ChatGPT, and the judge looked at it and was a little bit skeptical, and he noticed that virtually all of the citations in the brief were fabricated. <laughs> None of them were true. I think the lawyer is being disbarred by the, uh, the judge for having, uh, having done so. Uh, you know, there's all, all kinds of scientific and nobody knows what's right and what's wrong because it's all built into the into the literature uh, and there seems to be no way of determining the difference. Like for example, everybody knows you can fly faster than the speed of light. I mean, the Star Trek, uh, the uh, Enterprise does it. All you need is dilithium crystals, so it's got to be possible. No, it's not. This has become such a serious problem. The Nobel Committee uh, has set up a panel to try to figure out how to deal with it. Uh, they, unfortunately, are modeling it after the IPCC. Uh, I think that's a big mistake for them to do that because the IPCC... Uh, uh, has become one of the worst offenders uh, proliferation of, of pseudoscience. Or, uh, uh, well, in their case, I think it's just ba uh, bad science. They, they until more recently, uh, originally it was just uh, incorrect science, but now it has become uh, politically uh, inspired and, uh, and required that it be defended.
you know, and in fact, this is uh, reflected to some extent in uh, the findings of John, Dr. John Ioannidis from uh, from Stanford, where he saw, you know, a lot of a lot of contemporary scientific literature just doesn't checked out under closer scrutiny. Oh, yeah. for sure. I mean, nutrition is also one of, <laughs> another field where all of this is. It, it's under the influence of, of the associated in, industries, each one in, using it for competition or the other. Well, eating that food is bad for you. Uh, well, yeah, that's being promoted by the the other foods uh, industry. It's sort of one of the famous ones is the uh, pork, the other white meat. <laughs> I got a prize for that one. <laughs> so. So you've started working with the CO2 Coalition, presumably because you want to, you know, promulgate your findings here. And, and so what is, what is your vision for what you want to do? Well, they, uh, they invited me to join. I agree with their message. It's not clear yet that they agree with mine. They, their point has been um, uh, that CO2 is actually beneficial. Uh, I, I personally agree with that, that in fact, you know, like for example, if I understand, uh, if you pump uh, CO2 into a greenhouse, you can dramatically increase the growth rate of the plants inside. It's uh, actually uh, beneficial in, in, in many ways, and it seems silly to try to, uh, to limit it. For example, when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, the CO2 levels were... 10 times bigger than what we have, uh, what we experience right now. They could not, dinosaurs could not have survived on this earth uh, with this low CO2 level because you don't grow trees fast enough and foliage fast enough to feed them. They, have, they are big and they have big appetites and eat lots of stuff. And you need the high CO2 in order in the atmosphere to uh, just to, to feed them. College buddy of mine at uh, Caltech was one of, instrumental in this, a fellow named Art Robinson, uh, who founded the Heartland Institute, uh, the, promoting uh, CO2 as uh, being uh, actually a beneficial gas. As far as I can tell, there's nothing wrong with it, and, and in particular, it is uh, what I have just uh, mentioned earlier, it is not at all uh, significant in controlling the Earth's climate. So, so what's the bottom line? What should we be doing here in your view? Number one, all of the programs of which pervade virtually every part of the government, especially EPA policy, energy policy, all of them are all set to uh, limit uh, CO2 in, in the atmosphere, in the environment, uh, and, and methane in the, in the environment. And they are a huge, massive waste uh, of resources, of very valuable resources that uh, could be uh, being used for, for better, uh, uh, better humanitarian purposes. But there's a total waste of money and time and effort. Uh, and it is strangling industry. Uh, EPA policies are a total disaster. 
All of these policies should be stopped immediately, in my opinion. My suspicion is what I am saying here will be totally ignored because people don't like being told that they've made big mistakes of this magnitude. Well, and this is what I was going to ask. What are policymakers saying to you as you've been reporting to this, this to them or, or, or perhaps others have been sharing you know, what, what you've been talking about lately? Well, I had a very brief conversation with, on my way to Stockholm with uh, 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 Joe Biden in the Oval Office, and I mentioned I only had a few minutes to mention all of this, and his comment was, it sounds like right-wing science. <laughs> Beyond that, uh, I haven't gotten very far. Um, uh, perhaps a final thought, Dr. Klauser, as we finish? I haven't the faintest idea how you correct the disinformation problem. That is, I think, the most serious problem there is. I would hope that government policies uh, regarding climate change get changed. I'm uh, pessimistic whether that will happen, uh, but I still... Uh, want to paraphrase uh, Everett Dir Dirksen, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there, pretty uh, soon you're talking real money. And, and uh, I think we, this is a very serious problem that needs to be corrected. Well, and I'll just make a comment here, a final comment on my end. You mentioned that this, the scientific disinformation is one of the biggest problems. You don't know how to deal with that. Well, very often, so-called disinformation is uh, created or uh, you know distributed in the name of fighting disinformation. So it gets even more complicated. Well, mm -hmm. well, one one thing that nobody seems to have noticed in this regard, uh, in with the uh, rise of information technology and. Uh, in particular in uh, artificial information, there has been another elephant in the room that no one seems to have noticed. In the old days, we used computers to do balance our, our bank accounts, to do accounting, to do marvelous things, and there to do scientific calculations. I mean, computers have had millions and millions of applications and have totally revolutionized uh, the world. The primary value that they had was they didn't make mistakes. The arithmetic is always correct. The sneaky thing that has somehow been sneaked through by information technology is our acceptance of computers that don't make lots of mistakes. I, I have had a friend who wrote a program to evaluate various simple formulas for yacht race finish times. He put in the formula uh, had, and he was used ChatGPT to uh, generate this. ChatGPT couldn't even do arithmetic correctly. What its own uh, formulas it could not uh, evaluate the the big problem with artificial intelligence is 
that it makes tons and tons of mistakes. And even worse, it uses the uh, online data as its source material, and it hasn't the foggiest idea which is fiction and which is nonfiction. The big transition has been from computers that never made mistakes to computers that make massive numbers of mistakes. It couldn't tell you whether or not it's possible to fly faster than the speed of light. And somehow the, the big con by the artificial intelligence uh, industry is conning us into accepting this as, oh, well, of course, uh, well, yeah, they, they do make mistakes, but we're working on that. So I, I think that is a very serious problem. Uh, uh, that I will bl blame squarely on uh, artificial intelligence. I think this, it's a catastrophe. You know, I do want to ask you one more thing, and this artificial intelligence actually does figure into this. Um, over the last several years, especially during the last three years, there's been a lot of censorship of scientific opinion. And scientific ideas. And one notable example, you know, you had Stanford's Dr. J. Bhattacharya, Harvard's Martin Koldor, and Oxford's Sunetra Gupta. Uh, they co-wrote uh, an alternative view, right, on uh, to to the scientific orthodoxy, you know, called the Great Barrington Declaration. And this was censored. They were called fringe epidemiologists. There's a sort of culture of censorship. I wonder if you noticed this, and what is your reaction to that? Some of the, the work of climate change has been censored. I was recently invited to give a, a present, uh, pretty much the what I talked about on on your program. Uh, by uh, the International Monetary Fund uh, World Bank group in Washington. Uh, and once they heard apparently my talk in Korea that I mentioned that I was uh, skeptical of climate change, they summarily canceled the talk. Uh, and this was done by the uh, director of the office uh, uh, independent Evaluation Office of the uh, uh, of the IMF, uh, and I was told that he was under pressure uh, to cancel my talk and or postpone it to some later date. It has not been rescheduled, uh, to my knowledge yet. Uh, so. Uh, and they wanted to change the format to have somebody around for rebuttals, I guess. I don't know. Um, but they just simply uh, decided that, uh, no, they didn't want to hear it. I guess my question is, you know, do you think that it's okay to censor, you know, certain, certain scientific opinion for political reasons? Do you, is it, do you oh, have good, it? Good Lord, no. <laughs> or, or for, you know, because ostensibly. Um, it's right out, of, right out of Fahrenheit 451, you know, the book burning. Uh, we, have, we have been through book burnings in the past. They have been uh, uh, catastrophic. Okay. Uh, this is kind of a, this is, what the, I mean, this goes clear back to Galileo, who, who is, uh, threatened with being burned uh, at the stake for uh, uh, his, the fact that uh, 
uh, he was disputing the uh, the Vatican's opinion on orbital mechanics of the of the of the solar system. And so, fortunately, uh, he decided, oh, okay, I'll. Uh, given the alternative of being burned alive at the stake, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stop writing about it. But fortunately, his, his writings on the subject uh, survived. <laughs> well, Dr. John Clauser, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm happy to have been uh, here and, and allowed to uh, express my views. <laughs> Thank you all for joining Dr. John Clauser and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. It's a framework for assessing risk. It's a complete fraud. It's much more of a risk mitigation tool. It's a fraud because it's not better for shareholders. It's not better for stockholders. Our research shows that companies that do well in ESG are, end up doing better or fail less. A movement has been growing to unite corporations, governments, and global institutions. Its purpose is to deal with issues like climate change, racism, inequality and gun control. It is called ESG. If you can control the financial markets, if you can control the access to capital, you can dictate to any industry in the United States the way things are going to be run. BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard, these are just three firms, control about $21 trillion. That's about the size of the U.S. GDP. Will governments and corporations decide what we can say? Will they decide what we buy, how we travel, what we eat? Government is able to use those companies to do through the back door what government could not accomplish through the front door under the Constitution. Basically, you're gutting the middle class by getting rid of small business. Those small businesses won't be able to keep up with the ESG report. Immediately when that happened, PayPal froze the account and wouldn't let us access any of the funds that had been donated to us. So you can build a huge following, but you don't own your audience. They own your audience. They're just giving you access to it. The tech companies, to some extent, are just an arm of the people in positions of power in government. Your primary concern is who has my back? And the state is that entity. Those companies that reflect and reiterate state narratives will be rewarded, and those who don't will be punished. I believe this may be one of the biggest cases to reach the United States Supreme Court in this century. We don't vote on CEOs. We don't vote on some global world forum. This is the United States of America. A year ago, I was very pessimistic. Uh, I didn't think people were going to catch on to this. Uh, turns out it's not. Turns out I was wrong. <laughs>